0: Romans, if you would, please. I confess to you that this past season of time that we've been studying this book and certainly this chapter in Romans has been a rich, rich time for me personally. God has so filled my heart and opened my mind to things and given me understanding of things that have just been a source of continual blessing and comfort and encouragement and strength to me. I hope the same has been going on for you. It's with a heavy heart that I tell you that we're going to complete the 8th chapter of Romans this morning. <laughs> and I, I don't say that to be funny. It really, I do really have a heavy heart because if, if you've been with us throughout this study in the book of Romans, and we're going to take a hiatus from Romans uh, as we complete this chapter, we have been studying this book from chapter 1 clear through this chapter 8, uh, literally verse by verse. And uh, we've been some two and a half years in our study. Hardly seems like it, huh? But it's been a rich, rich study. Rich study. And there indeed is even much more in these concluding nine verses of chapter 8 that I, I, I just desire greatly to impart to you. Uh, but there is much pressure to press on. And so I am bowing to the pressure and we will press on. I'm sad to have to do that, but we're going to do it anyway. And hopefully this morning we'll hit some of the high points in these last nine verses and give you a flavor and some understanding of what Paul's argument is here, what he's saying to us. But it's a rich book, and we have taken time to study it and to work our way through it. The reason being that I think that uh, repetition, redundancy, is probably one of the best teachers. And some in our midst have Express concern that we are taking so much time and being so redundant, and uh, wish that we wouldn't be. And while I understand that, I, I say that I think that it's important that we meditate on these things. And the fruit is being born, I see, in many lives, new understanding of the doctrine of salvation. Paul writes about this in this beautiful book, and he devotes the whole first eight chapters to this one doctrine. It is so significant and so important and so vital that we grasp it and understand it, that he devotes eight chapters to it. No place else does he do that. This is the doctrine, par excellence. This is the fundamental thing that you must understand, and you must grasp, the doctrine of salvation. If you do not if you do not really know what you believe. If your life has not been changed by faith, if God has not changed you, then indeed you are not a Christian. And how can you know but that you understand what Paul tells us? How can you know what the truth is unless we study it closely? The church is full, not just our church, but the church around the world is full of people who profess to be Christians and who, in fact, are not. Full of people who do not understand what it means to be born again, to be changed. People who are just kind of coasting, thinking they're okay, and they're in, and they're saved. And indeed, some even in our own midst here uh, have taken the things that we've been studying most recently in terms of predestination, being chosen, being part of God's elect, And they have used those very things to justify their own sinful, disobedient, rebellious behavior, sadly. I've heard comments and remarks made that, well, I'm chosen, and it doesn't matter what I do. God forgives me. Beloved, it does matter what you do. The very fact that you could make that statement so arrogantly and pridefully would indicate to me that you, in fact, are not part of the chosen. You're not. Jesus says the mark of one who is a believer, the mark of his true disciple is obedience. Loving obedience. Not obedience under compulsion. Not because you have to, but because you want to. Because it's the desire of your heart. Why? Because God has changed you and he's put the desire there. And so if you would find yourself in the place of saying and thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. That means I'm part of the chosen. That means I'm part of the elect. That means I'm predestined. That means that whatever I do, I can do whatever I choose, and God still forgives me, and that's it, and I can not worry about it. That's not what it says. That's not what salvation is all about. God saves people and changes them so that they can obey him. They can obey him. And they, in fact, find themselves obeying him. They desired to They hunger to obey And that hunger continues to grow in them. Are you with me? Very important to understand this doctrine. Because without a firm foundation, a firm understanding of this one doctrine of salvation to which Paul devotes so much time, so much thought, so much energy, and to which we have also, without that, your Christian life becomes nothing more than a real drudge. No peace. No real peace. No deep joy. You don't rise up in the morning and say, oh God, thank you. You have no great sense of appreciation for what God has done. You can't go to communion and and weep and have your heart broken because of what Christ has done and what God has done through him. Your Christian life becomes nothing more than an old legalistic march through life. You continue to be critical of yourself and critical of others. You feel unacceptable and you're unable to accept others. It's very simple. You don't understand God's grace. And hence, we have spent much time studying and reflecting and thinking and trying to understand the richness and the depth of this great doctrine. And Paul indeed has devoted that much time to it. And we've reached the climax in the eighth chapter where. Paul confirms to us that if you are a true believer, you are secure with God. You're secure. You're secure. He's told us that He will work all things for our good. All things. Nothing for our bad. Our good here and now, and our good ultimately in glory. Paul has told us that God foreknew us. He knew us before the creation of the world, before the creation of time. He knew us, and He predestined us. He predestined us. A lady came to me last night after the Saturday evening service, and we sat right here, and we talked about this, and I was recapping quickly like I am now with you what we talked about last week, and this idea of predestination, and she came up, and she was burning inside, and she says, tell me about this predestination. She begins to tell me about this unfolding tale of tragedy in her life in which she was in a mental institution for some time and, and she said, did God predestine that for me? I said, no. God never predestined that for you. He knew it would happen to you. But he predestined that he would use that in your life for your good. The years that the locusts have eaten, he would redeem. He would reclaim. And he would use even that devastating season in your life and turn it around and overrule it. And cause it to be a source of great blessing in your life. And with that insight and that understanding, she wept right here. She sat right here and wept. And she said, oh, God's faithfulness. He does love me. He is faithful. She needed to understand. I said, God is going to use all of that to make you more like Jesus. He didn't predestine you to it. He predestined you to become like Christ. And He'll use all the things in your life, even your own disobedience. He can overrule that. Does that give us an excuse to be disobedient? No. Paul has told us wondrous things. He said, those He foreknew, He predestined. Those He predestined, He called. God intersected your life. He didn't overrule your will, but He turned your heart. He opened your heart that the things previously that were foolish to you and you wouldn't believe and you counted as craziness, he turned your heart now so that you could appreciate them and that you could want them. He turned your heart. He made it possible for you to make a decision. God. Those he called, the call was so effective as to bring you to a place of being justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Beloved, if you're a true believer, you're in. You're in. You're secure. The passage we're going to look at this morning, these last nine verses, you know, you reach the end of that 30th verse, and Paul says, those he justified, he glorified. You think, man, what else can he say? What more can he say? He said it all. Then he drops nine more verses on us. And it's in those nine verses that he deals with one last time the objectors. The objectors. Now he's been dealing with these people all along. This is not the first time Paul sets this down. He has been preaching this same doctrine for years. And it's in Corinth when he writes it down. He pens it and he sends it off to the church at Rome. And he's already encountered all the objectors and all the arguments. And it's right here in this section that we're going to look at this morning that he anticipates the objections that will be in Rome to those who will say, but, but, I still think you can lose your salvation. And there are some even still in our midst who think that, who believe that there's some person, some way, some means, some circumstance that can somehow take us out of God's hands, that can somehow rip us out, that can somehow be the cause of us losing our security. And to this answer, or to this question, Paul says no. And hence the last nine verses, and these are the reasons that he writes these things to answer those objections and to finally put to rest those who are objecting. He says in verse 31, What then shall we say in response to this? Or what shall we say in response to these things? More literally, what is there left to say? I mean, you think, gosh, he said it all. He's given us everything we need to know. What is there left to say? And he kind of summarizes it with this one sentence. If God is for us, what's the second half? Complete it. Complete it. If God is for us, who can be against us? You see what he's saying? God is for us. Who's God? Well, he's the most powerful person ever. Is there anybody more powerful than God? Do you know anybody more powerful than God? No! And if he is for us, who can be against us? What person could possibly be stronger stronger than God and rip us out of his hand? What person? Now, he's going to talk about two things, persons and circumstances. The first half of this section is devoted to the Possible persons that could do it. And then the second half is devoted to the possible circumstances that could, that could happen in our life that would cause us to fail. Okay? And we're going to deal with both of those. God is for us. Do you believe that God is for you? Do you really believe that? People come along and say, Well, I know that's what the Bible says, but I don't feel God is for me. But He is. He is. He's for you. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, God says this to Abram. He says, I am your shield. I am your shield. He doesn't say, I'm going to make a shield for you. Say, I'm going to do this miracle. I'm going to gather up this stuff, or I'm going to speak a shield into existence out of nothing. No, he says, I am your shield. Was God for Abraham? Oh, yeah, read Genesis. Read the account of Abraham's life and watch how God time after time after time after time delivered Abraham, even in the midst of Abraham's own foolishness. Was God for Abraham? Yes. And he says the same thing to us. Why? Because we are of the faith of Abraham. Paul writes that in Romans chapter 4. We are of the faith of Abraham. God is for him. He is a shield to Abraham. He is a shield to us. He is for us. Do you remember the verse in the beautiful psalm, Psalm 23, David's prayer, the shepherd's psalm? That prayer, that promise of protection and blessing. Verse 4, Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? Fear. I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. I won't fear an evil. Picture this in your mind, if you will. You're a, you're a little child, little boy, little girl. And there's a threatening circumstance up ahead of you. You're all alone. Are you going to go into that circumstance? you Are going to go out on the schoolyard where all these kids have been picking on you and beating you up? Or are you going to hide from it? you Are going to walk down a dark street, a dark alley, where there's all kinds of threatening shadows, and you don't know what's out there? Going through the valley of the shadow of death? Terror strikes your heart, huh? But let me ask you this. Would you go through that? Would you go out on that playground and risk with your dad, with your papa taking you by the hand, or with your big brother taking you by the hand? Oh, yes. Absolutely. You walk out there and say, try it. (laughs) Just try it. My papa's with me. My papa's with me. My big brother's with me. And all the people who would accuse, all the people who would attack, They give you wide girth, don't they? Sure they do. I will fear no evil because, why? You are with me. You are with me. Turn to Psalm 27. I want you to see this. Psalm 27. Listen to David here. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. And though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident, confident. Now I want you to see what the attitude is in a person's life that really trusts in God. I want you to read with me now just what follows that passage. He's confident in the Lord. Now listen to what he says. It creates in him this kind of response. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Isn't that lovely? Why? Why can you say that? Why can that person say that? Because, you see, they know God is for them. They don't need to cry out and ask for protection. They know God's already there protecting. They're confident. They're secure. And so they're free to say, Oh, all I want to do is just dwell in your temple and gaze on your glory and your beauty. That's the one thing I desire. I don't desire anything else. See, that's the person who is at rest. That's the person who is at peace in their heart. That's the person who's not anxious and fearful. The person who knows that God is for them. God is for them. You can't disrupt their life. That God is for them. Turn over to Psalm 46 just a little bit further on, a few pages. We'll look at a couple of verses here. Same idea. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Ever-present help. He's not off someplace else doing something in the universe. He's an ever-present help in trouble. And therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. I mean, there's no reason to be afraid. When an earthquake hits, we're going to go, oh! Why? Because we know that our God's in charge. We know that our God is for us. We know what? That he is an ever-present help in trouble. I'm not afraid of a nuclear bomb. I'm not afraid of one at all. If a nuclear bomb falls and hits, I want it to hit right there. I want that to be ground zero. Vaporize me. I want to go home. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of an earthquake. I'm learning to trust God. I'm learning to know that He is for me in every circumstance in my life. Why? Because I have sought shelter under His wings. Turn to Psalm 91. Precious, precious promises. Psalm 91. For years, I had the hardest time trusting God. I lived with a lot of fear and insecurity, worried. And I would look at people's lives and I'd see tragedy happening and I wouldn't want it to happen in my life. And I, you know, you know can you relate to this? Sure. And I'd see Christians who were suffering ter- terribly and going lots of tragedy. And I'd say, oh, man, I don't want that to happen to me. And it would cause me to hold back. I didn't really trust God, and, and so I, in, I entered into a season of learning how to trust God, of committing myself to that process of, of saying, God, I, I trust you, I want to trust you more and more. And part of that process was I was memorizing Psalm 91. I made myself come to this psalm and because it's so overwhelming in its promise. And midway through, as I was memorizing it, the Lord spoke to me. He didn't speak to me in an audible voice, He just impressed upon me. I had this sense. These thoughts came into my mind. Have I not protected you all this time? Have I not provided for you? Have I not blessed you? And I have to confess to you, I had to look back over my life and say, yes, you have. I, have. I have a blessed life. Not without tribulation, not without suffering, certainly, but I have a blessed life. And God has provided for me. And he said, "Oh, you of little faith." And I said, "Lord, forgive me." But he encouraged me. Read this song with me. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. In that one verse, Paul or David sums up what Paul has given us in the entire book of Romans, at least in the first eight chapters. The whole doctrine of salvation isn't that one verse. If you dwell in the shelter of the Most High, you will rest in His shadow. He'll give you rest. You'll be at peace. You know you're accepted. You know you're loved. And the emptiness and the hole in your life and in your heart will be filled wondrously, miraculously by God Himself. But it's dependent upon you going and dwelling in the shelter of the Most High. That I means go to God, learn to rest there. He says, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday a thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Isn't that encouraging? you will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you and no disaster will come near your tent. That's a pretty awesome promise, isn't it? Does that sound like God is for you? Oh, absolutely. For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, In all your ways. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Isn't it nice to know that you have more than one guardian angel? God can put a legion of angels around you to protect you. If you have made the most high your dwelling place. If you've trusted in Him. Look at verse 14. God speaks here. He says, Because He loves me, Speaking of us, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. And with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. That's security, wouldn't you say? I mean, every possible thing that could afflict and attack your life, God says, I'll be before you. I'll be your shield. God is for us. The whole point of what Paul is saying there in that 8th chapter. Turn back there with me. Chapter 8, Romans. God is for us. Who then can be against us? Well, you say, well, okay, well, now I understand. I hear what you're saying. God is for me. But... Is there any chance that God, someplace in the future, will not be for me? I mean, that's that's a concern, isn't it? Is there any chance, is there the slightest chance that maybe God, you know, he'll kind of get halfway through with me? Larry. And you say, you know, this guy isn't worth the trouble. (laughs) Is there a chance that maybe his love will wane? or maybe cease altogether, is a chance that someplace down the road that he won't be for me? Huh? No, that's what he answers in verse 32. He tells us in verse 32 the extent of God's love for us. He communicates the extent of his care for us in verse 32. Read it with me. Read it with me here. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? How do you know God is always going to be for you? Well, first of all, Paul says, God did the greatest thing he could possibly do to get you. What was that? He gave up his son. His own son, that word, his own son, if you study it closely, there's a parallel passage in the Old Testament, in chapter 22 of Genesis, in verse 16. And it is in the Greek Old Testament, called the Septuagint. That passage is translated identically to the way Paul translates it here. Identically. What we think is Paul just lifted it right out of that passage and stuck it right here. God gave his own son. If you remember in Genesis, you remember Abraham? Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac was the promised son. And Abraham and Sarah waited for Isaac for 25 years. And finally Isaac comes up and shows up on the scene. He's given birth. And it was a miraculous event. Remember that? Now Abraham had another son, didn't he? Who was it? Ishmael. That's right. But listen how God describes Isaac. He says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son. The idea is that your precious possession, the one that you love so wonderfully, I want you to take your only son up on Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him to me. I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now remember, it was through Isaac that the promise was going to come. It was through Isaac that Abraham would be blessed. It was through Isaac that the Messiah was to come. And Abraham's thinking, whoa, if I sacrifice Isaac, what's going to happen? He'd waited for Isaac, and Isaac had finally been born. He'd grown up, and he was the the object of all of Abraham's desires and love and dreams and hopes. What parent doesn't feel that about their child? And here God comes and says, I want you to sacrifice him. So Abraham obediently takes Isaac up to the top of the mountain, prepares the altar, lays him out, and is just ready to plunge the knife into him to sacrifice him, and an angel comes and says, don't do it. And God says to him, I know your faithfulness. You have not withheld, now get this, you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You love me so much, that you were willing to give up your precious, precious son. And the picture there, of course, is God's love for us. And Abraham is a picture of God the Father, willing to give up his only precious son, Jesus. And then at the last moment, you see the substitutionary death, don't you? You see Isaac being spared and the sacrificial lamb going on the altar. And you see that the picture in our own life, there's a substitution that we're spared in Jesus' sacrifice. He's the lamb. But the point is, is that Paul writes here that God gave his only son, his own son, his precious possession for us. If he did the greatest thing he could ever give, if he he gave the greatest thing he could ever give to get us, don't you think then that he will do the lesser thing to keep us? Remember chapter 5 in Romans 8, 9, and 10, verses 8, 9, and 10? When Paul writes there, he says, while we were still sinners... While we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. Do you remember that? When we were at our worst, Jesus died for us. And now that we're better, don't you think he's going to keep us? So who can take us out of God's hands? Who can accuse us? Will God's love wane and fail? No, God's love is so incredible that he gave his son. He says he did not spare his son. When we bring discipline to bear on our children... Sometimes we spare them, don't we? you do that? We do it in our house. Michael has an understanding of grace, and when it's time for some discipline, he'll say to me, Dad, can we have some grace here? (laughs) What are you going to say? No? You've got to say, well, all right, we'll give you some grace. We'll moderate the discipline. He's a pretty smart cookie. He understands grace. He uses it to his advantage. Even in discipline in the church, we don't always bring the full brunt of discipline. But Paul says that God did not even spare his own son. Didn't spare him one bit. He poured out his entire wrath on Jesus. Poured out all of his anger and his wrath against sin on Jesus. Didn't spare him one bit. Showed Jesus no grace. He gave him up. What did he give him up to? Listen to some of the things that God gave his son up to Jesus. He gave him up to the power of darkness. He gave him up to Satan. What father here who loves his son would give his son over to Satan for the destruction of his Satan himself. Jesus says it. He says, Satan is coming. The power of darkness is here. And how he had to surrender to it. God gave him up. The Father gave him up to the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. Horrible agony. When I see my son agonizing, when I see my son in pain, when I see my son grieving, oh, I want to sweep him up in my arms and soothe him and love him and hug him and kiss him and make it all better. And yet the Father stood by while his son agonized in the Garden And the agony was so great, the anxiety was so intense, his blood pressure was so astronomical that it burst all the peripheral blood vessels. The sweat was so profuse that the water mixed with the blood and he literally dropped big drops of blood. Sweat blood. Unless you think that's a myth, there is a medical condition called hematrodosis in which that does happen. And I dare say you and I have never suffered anxiety in grief to that to that extreme and yet the father stood by while he delivered him up he gave him over to that kind of anxiety that kind of pressure and Jesus suffered it three times the father had to hear father, father can we do this another way until finally Jesus submitted and said not my will but yours be done Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that Jesus was made sin. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. Made to be sin. God gave him up that he made made sin. In Galatians chapter 3, Christ became a curse for us, Paul says. The Father gave him up to be cursed for us. On the cross, he was forsaken. If you can possibly imagine that. Jesus is struggling and gasping. He's drowning in his own juices. And he cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? And the father had to turn his face. Not because it was so hard for him to look at, but because Christ was being condemned and punished for us. Beloved, if God did that to his own son for us, to get us when we were his enemies... Don't you think that he'll do the lesser thing to keep us? you think that he's going to now let us slip through his fingers? No. It's absurd to think that. It's absurd to think And Paul says, don't you think that God will, won't he also now give us all things graciously with him, with Christ? Hasn't he put all things in Christ's hand? Aren't we fellow heirs, co heirs with Christ? Won't He give us all things? Yes. No chance of God's love lessening. No chance of Him ever not being for us. He'll be for us all through eternity. Isn't that comforting? Well, we come into another objection here. And this objection is in the next three verses, two verses, verses 33 and 34. Where Paul says, well, well, who could possibly bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who could bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. So God isn't going to bring a charge. He's the one who justifies. He's the highest court in the land. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 12, verse 10, John writes there that Satan is night and day bringing accusations against the brothers. Night and day, Satan is accusing you and I before the very throne of God. Indeed, in Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, in chapter 3, there's a a little scene in which the the, uh, priest, Joshua, is brought before the throne, and there is Satan before the throne accusing Joshua. And the Lord turns to Satan and says, The Lord rebuke you. Is this one, meaning Joshua, is this not one that I have plucked from the fire? And here's Joshua standing in all his ragged clothes, filthy dirty. And God is for him rebuking Satan in the face of Satan's accusations. And then God turns and says, clean him up and put on him new robes. Speaking of Joshua the priest. What a beautiful picture. You remember Job? When Satan came to God and accused... To God, Job, and said, you know, of course he obeys you. Of course he worships you. Of course he honors you. You built a hedge of protection around him. You take down that hedge and watch how fast he curses you. Does Job curse him? Never. Never. Why? Because God is for him. God sustains him. So who can bring any charge? Who can, who can accuse well, there can be all kinds of accusations. Aren't there people in your own life, some people maybe family, friends, people at work with, uh, that aren't Christians that wish you weren't a Christian, and that accuse you, huh? Sure, they're there in your life. But can they bring a, 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 an accusation that will ultimately condemn you to hell, that will cause God to reverse His verdict? What's His verdict? Not guilty. On what basis? Christ's death on the cross for each and every one of us. So, who will accuse? It's God who justifies. God who justifies. And then he says in verse 34 Well, what about Christ? Will Christ condemn us? Who is he that condemns? And the response is Christ Jesus. He died. He died for us. No, more than that, he was raised from the dead. More than that, he was seated at the right hand of the Father. More than that, he makes constant intercession for us. What's Christ's attitude towards us? Will he accuse us? Will he condemn us? No. Not Jesus. He died. Paul tells us that when Christ died, you put your faith in him. You died with him. When Christ was raised to new life, you were raised to new life also, were you not? If Christ is never to die again, then guess who else is not going to die again? You and me. Eternal death. And Christ not only rose, but he was seated at the right hand of the Father. It doesn't say that in this passage, but in Hebrews it says it five times. That when he ascended, he was seated at the right hand of God and beloved. There's great beauty in that, in that word, seated. In the Old temple when the priests constantly offered sacrifice there was no provision for them to sit down they could never sit they were constantly offering sacrifices jesus enters the tabernacle in heaven and he sits down signifying what that the work is done it's finished he doesn't need to offer any more sacrifice and not only that paul tells us he continues to make intercession he continues to intercede for us his very presence there is the intercession that we have been justified, and that our glorification is in the bag, so to speak. So will Christ condemn? No, not Christ. Not Christ. He will not. Let's look at the second part of this. In verses 35 through 37, he talks about situations and circumstances. What if I fail? If no one can accuse me, no other person, not even Satan, can take me out of God's hands. What about me? Maybe I can do it. And that's really the argument that most people present. They come and they say, well, what if I fail? You can lose your own salvation, can you? Paul's going to tell us no. He's going to tell us no. People will always come along and they'll say, well, you know, I knew a guy one time who professed to be a Christian he was in the church, served, he was on the board of elders, did all this stuff, and then he fell away. See, that proves you can lose your salvation. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It only proves that some guy professed to be a Christian and fell away. That's all it proves. It doesn't prove that he was a Christian. Look at 1 John chapter 2. Open your Bibles to that verse, I want that section. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. First John 2.19, what he says here. Now John's addressing the church and there have been people who've been falling away and, and they're all concerned and worried. He says this, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. The fact that somebody could leave, the fact that somebody could fall away, the fact that somebody could fail only demonstrates that they never were really of us. They were never really a believer in the first place. Do you remember the parable of the sower and the seed in Matthew chapter 13? Jesus describes different kinds of soil and he says that the seed was sown on these four different kinds of soil and one kind of soil was the rocky soil. There wasn't much depth to it. There's a little topsoil, but underneath was a shelf of limestone, and that's common in uh, Palestine and Israel. And, and so the, when something is planted, it doesn't get much depth of root, and so it the, the, the doesn't survive. And when the heat of the sun comes, it scorches the plant and it dies. There was no depth of root there. There was some quick springing up of something but it wasn't, it wasn't the substance. It wasn't there. And so the question comes to us, well what, well, what if I fail? If I'm a true believer, can I be secure? What if I fail? Is there some circumstance that can be a source of my failing? Here's what he says. In verse 35. Translate that first word, not so much who, but what. In the Greek, the word is tis, and it could be translated either Greek, or either, uh, who or what, and from the context, there's a better translation of what. So he says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? He's already been dealing with who. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? Trouble is the Greek word thlipsis, which means tribulation. We translate it that way someplace else. It's intense external pressure being brought to bear on a person's life. Intense pressure. It's used to describe the threshing of the wheat to separate the chaff from the grain. And intense pressure had to be brought to bear so that that would happen. So he says, So, trouble, that kind of intense external pressure on our life, cause us to fall away? No. What about hardship, internal pressure? The idea of being in a narrow space, out of options, no place to go. Will that cause it? Will that circumstance cause us to fall away? What about persecution or famine or nakedness? destitute? What if you're absolutely destitute? Will that cause you to fall away? Will that cause you to be torn out of God's hands? What about danger? What about ever-present treachery over your life? What about death itself, the threat of it? Will that cause you to fall away? In fact, Paul says in verse 36, an astounding thing. He quotes out of Psalm 44 a statement that is just overwhelming. For your sake, we face death all day long. You see, for the true believer, there's an understanding that the Christian life isn't easy. That there is going to be trouble. There is going to be persecution. There is going to be suffering. There is going to be hardship in the Christian life. It's part of it. In fact, when he says, for your sake, we suffer all day long... There's implied in there a willingness to pick up the cross, a willingness to die daily on the part of the true believer. You see that? There's a willingness to do that. In fact, he goes even further and he says, We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. I mean, that's a hard statement. But the Christian knows that he is expendable, the Christian knows that his life is nothing without Christ. He's not here for himself. He's here to serve. Just as Jesus said, not my will but yours be done. The Christian also says, not my will but yours be done. See, God is conforming us into the image of Christ. And so so shall any of these circumstances be a source of us falling away? No, he says in verse 37. No, quite the opposite. He says, in fact, in all these things that he's just described, whether it be hardship or trouble or famine or nakedness or persecution or peril or danger or even the sword. He says, no, in all these things, we are what? More than conquerors. I love the words he uses. Two words, huper nikomen in the Greek text. Huper meaning over and above. Nikomen, from which we get the word Nike. You know, the Nike missiles? You know what he's saying? He's saying we are super Nikes. These things don't blow us away. We blow them away. These things don't tear us out of God's hands. No, 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 no. We're super Nikes. We're super conquerors. We overwhelm the circumstances. The circumstances don't overwhelm us and blow us away. Why? Because God is for us. And God sustains us. And he gives us everything we need. Doesn't Paul write in Philippians chapter 4 that my God shall supply everything you need according to His riches and glory in Christ? Yes. Everything you need to stand firm. Everything you need to persevere, He provides. He provides. You think you're standing in your own strength? No. How did Job stand? Job could only stand because God sustained him. Paul could only stand because God sustained him. And he knew the secret, my God shall supply all your needs too. No, these circumstances don't blow us away. They only provide us stepping stones to greater glory. We come out of these things stronger. We come out of these things more confirmed. We come out of these things loving God more. We come out of these things stronger, Christians. Indeed, Paul writes in another place, he says... Our light and momentary troubles, that's how he describes tribulation and suffering, our light and momentary troubles are what? They are gaining for us or perfecting for us a greater weight of glory. See, we're super conquerors. Can any circumstance be a source of devastating us to the degree that throws us out of God's hands? No. No, because God is for us. No person can accuse us. No person can rip us out of God's hands. No circumstance can be the source of that. God is for us. And in all of these things, we are super Nikes. is that a nice, nice way to look at yourself? Does that bring is that a statement of security? Oh, absolutely. And then he concludes in verses 38 and 39. He says, You know, I am convinced. I am convinced. Some of your translation says, I am persuaded. I am convinced that neither death nor life, he's describing a state of being, isn't he? And everything in between. You see the death or life and all the things in between. No matter what state of being you may be existing in, neither angels nor demons, no, that means any kind of person, any kind of other creature, and be they a good angel or a bad angel, are all in between. And neither the present nor the future, nothing here and now, Or nothing's going to come down the pike in the future. No unsuspecting, no surprise is going to come along to take this away from you. Nor any powers, no sudden miraculous kind of event is going to take you away. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. If you are a true believer, you are secure. There is no way, no person, no circumstance that can take you out of God's hands. You are secure. That doesn't give you an excuse to go off and do whatever you choose and sin flagrantly and be arrogant about it. The fact that you know that you're a Christian is that you find yourself being conformed to the image of Christ. You find yourself desiring more and more to obey Him. Not because you have to, because you want to. It's called loving obedience. And Jesus says it Himself. He says, if you obey me, you are my disciple. Turn to one last passage, John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 27. Listen to this. Powerful. My sheep listen to my voice. Now, in some of the translations, it, it gives you the idea because the words are, My sheep hear my voice, and it's kind of a, a sense, it's a passive sense. You just hear his voice. No, no. The idea is that there's an active participation here. My sheep listen to my voice, they listen. I know them, and they follow me. They're not wandering off someplace. They follow me. It's a statement of fact. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Are you secure? Are you convinced? I hope so. Because if you're absolutely convinced and you find yourself being conformed to the image of Christ, if you find yourself hungering after Christ, if you find yourself listening to His voice, if you find yourself following after Him, If you find yourself being lovingly, obedient, beloved, you are the chosen. And you are secure. And there is nothing that can take you out of His hand. And you can rest in that knowledge. And you can know that you're accepted. And you don't have to work hard anymore to try to earn His approval because you already got it. You already got it. The God of the universe loves you right now as much as he ever will. Let's pray. Father, how we love you this morning and how we praise your name. How I thank you that you are for us. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who just struggle with this and have a hard time. I pray for those here this morning who may not know you. For those who had paid lip service to you for those who think that they know you but their life has not changed they're not different lord you said that many will come to you in that day in the end time and many will say lord lord didn't i do this for you didn't i do that for you but you look to them and you say i never knew you never did i know you away from me Jesus." I pray that by your spirit this morning, that if there be some here this morning who have not examined their life, as your servant Paul has said, that we should check ourselves out to make sure that we are of the faith. I pray that by your spirit this morning that great work would happen. I pray that, Lord, that you sovereignly would speak to hearts. We thank you for the great joy and the great peace of knowing that you're for us, for those who are of the faith of Abraham. We bless your name this morning. Fathers, we go to communion today as we remember Jesus, as we memorialize him once again. Strengthen us. Strengthen those who are weak and encourage those who are faint-hearted. Lord, those who need encouragement and strength in their life. Bless us all, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.